Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. God's Word, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I'll be reading from verse 3 through 16. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, They also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, And the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into this passage regarding widows that you would give us your wisdom, that your spirit would guide us, that your spirit would convict us, and Father, show us how we need to repent, how we need to Uh, grow in regard to this word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon it and bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So last Sunday we focused on the first six verses of this passage addressing widows and we, we learn from Scripture that God cares and defends and watches widows as well as uh, orphans, as well as sojourners. He watches how his people and the nations care for the weak, how, how people care for widows. The focus of that first section was this, if a widow is in need, her children and grandchildren should care for her first. Uh, before that duty falls on others or on the church. The section we're focused on today shifts 
now to address what's known as the widow's list. Widows were enrolled on this list or entered into uh, this position in the church by meeting certain qualifications, uh, not unlike the list that Paul uh, has previously laid out for deacons and elders, these qualifications must be demonstrated by women before they are enrolled on that widow's list. Uh, a woman must demonstrate these qualities before, uh, now think about this, a woman must demonstrate these qualities before she becomes a widow. So these qualifications are to be practiced when you are a young woman or even newly married or uh, in process before you become a widow. You must have proven these things um, so that when, when and if you become a widow, you have proven your godliness. It's well known to the church. Uh, that means this is for all women at every age, not simply once you have aged and have lost a husband. Um, so this is another description of the godly woman. Put this alongside other passages in scripture we know describe the godly woman. This enrolled list also seems to describe a particular role in the church uh, that was fulfilled by these godly widows. They were enrolled and then they had their living expenses covered by the church, but there was work that they were expected to perform for the church. The consensus is that they did two things. They prayed and they cared for the poor of the church and the poor of the community. Um, and, and really caring for the poor, that compassion that's necessary for that is something that only godly women are truly able to do. They become, in a sense, mothers, spiritual mothers, mothers in Israel uh, to those who are destitute. Uh, they feed and clothe and generally help the poor. Here's a description of their work um, from Stephen Clark's book, Man and Woman in Christ. Here's, here's how he describes it after he studied history. The description of the true widow in verse 5 makes it clear that a central part of the widow's activity was prayer and intercession. Post-New Testament descriptions of the order of widows in the early Christian community confirm that prayer and intercession was one of the main, if not the main, activity of the widow. In addition, the qualifications of a good candidate include a reputation for charitable work. The deacons and widows, listen to that, the deacons and widows served the needy in different ways. In general, they served in a way consistent with the distinction between provider and the one who serves the immediate need. The deacons, who were men, filled the role of provider. They supervised the help given to the needy in the community, making sure that money, food, and other supplies were distributed. The widows served the needy more immediately. They made clothes for them. They nursed the sick, visited homes, and notified the elders and deacons when they discovered care, um, cases of need. Both men and women did charitable service, but their roles in this service differed. This role difference was analogous to the role difference in the family. Right? So an it was analogous to the family that the, the husband is, is in office, he's the father, he's a provider, He's um, protector, 
and then to the children especially, but then the mother is more engaged in the immediate needs. So the deacons and the widows split up in the same way, that there was authority and then there was somebody who filled, um, filled the, the immediate need of the, the work. John Calvin assumes the same thing about these enrolled widows, even calling them deacons. He calls these enrolled widows deacons. From a sermon on this passage, the widows who were now old, as we shall note later, were received as if in a hospice and they were fed. It is true that they worked notwithstanding, but if they wanted anything, they had it supplied by the alms and they also took care of the sick. To be short, those who were widows gave themselves wholly to serve the church and were like public persons and had also a name that they were called deacons. For as men served to distribute the alms and to gather them, the widows were to help the sick and to care for the poor who were also upheld by alms. And because the widows were thus received, were in some honor, for they were consecrated to God, St. Paul says precisely to Timothy that he should honor those who are widows indeed. Now, why does Calvin call them deacons? He could just be using that as a generic title, i.e. servants. That's what, the, that's what the Greek word means. It just means a servant. Um, that's the literal meaning of the word. Nowhere in Scripture do we learn that these widows were subject to ordination. Um, and nowhere do we read Calvin saying that they should administrate or exercise authority in the church. Whereas with the men who are deacons and elders, they... they we have examples in Scripture of ordination. We have hands laid on them, Acts 6, 1 Timothy 4. Their ordination is clear. In the Institutes, Calvin writes this. Unless my judgment deceive me, and he's, he's interpreting Romans 12, 8. He, Paul, designates the deacons who distribute alms, but the second refers to those who had devoted themselves to the care of the poor and sick. Of this sort were the widows, whom Paul mentions to Timothy. Women could fill no other public office than to devote themselves to the care of the poor. If we accept this, as it must be accepted, he says, there will be two kinds of deacons, one to serve the church in administering the affairs of the poor, and the other in caring for the poor themselves. Okay, in other words, like Stephen Clark described, there will be an office of deacons to administrate and provide and servants, particularly enrolled widows who would do the actual service alongside the widows and in particular, or alongside the deacons and in particular care of women. So could this, could this godly group of widows, of godly widows, be called deaconesses? Um, if by this we are designating them servants of the church and not subject to, uh, subjects to ruling authority and ordination, I think so. But, but please keep in mind as we work through the passage now that the requirements to be an enrolled widow or a deaconess are quite intense and not at all what men in the PCA want to do with an office of deaconess or a diaconate comprised of both men and women together. If these, if these men um, were to adhere to the qualifications, if the men in the PCA who, who want women deacons were to 
adhere to the qualifications in this passage, um, I'd be shocked. It would be a shocking, um, it would be a shocking concession um, and submission to the Scripture, especially given the um, given the qualifications. I kind of want to say to them, yes, we'll give you deaconesses, but let's pattern it off of 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. And then let's get to working it out. The Apostle Paul writes, so let's look at what it says. What are these qualifications? The Apostle Paul writes, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Quite simple requirements here. She can't be 59, she can't be 49, she can't be 29, she can't be 24. She must be 60 or older. Why this age? Why this age? The apostle explains it, verse 11 and following. But refuse to to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. The short answer for for why... Only women who are ages 60 and above is that they will not be tempted to break their vow to serve the church by the contracting of a marriage. They're to be dedicated to the church. They're vowing to be dedicated to the church, but they would break that vow to be married. Younger women will want to get married. Um, Some older women will desire to get married. Uh, The Apostle Paul says their passions draw them from Christ. And I believe that's a way of saying drawing them not not necessarily at this point away from the faith entirely, but that could be, and it, it seems to be what he's saying later, but rather away from this particular vow that they made to serve the body of Christ. They were enrolled on the widow's list. That gave them this position, and they were to be dedicated to the service of the church. Nonetheless, they have passions, desires to be married, and that's not a sinful passion in and of itself. It's not a wrong thing to desire that. It just keeps you from being on the widow's list. Um, It is, though, when after they have made a vow not to be married so as to be dedicated to the ministry, they, they, as Paul says, have abandoned their former faith, this faith to be committed to the church. They've abandoned their commitments. Um, The Holy Spirit does have directions for these younger widows who desire to be married and who cannot give themselves, therefore, to the church. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. They are to get married. They are to have children. They are to be oikodespotes. They are to be the rulers of their homes. And by those means, give the devil no reason for slander. Um, Interesting implication of this passage. Widows, young widows who refuse to marry, have children, and keep house, give the adversary reasons to slander God's people and slander the church. 
Now, can you imagine any pastor today advising young widows, those who have lost a husband, and who perhaps already have children from that first marriage, can you imagine any pastor today telling those young widows to marry, have children, and keep house? Marry, have children, keep house. Are we willing to accept that as an application of this passage? Are we willing to accept the fact that women are are also, in, in addition to men, moral agents who, when not giving themselves to those good and godly things, are apt to get derailed from the faith, right? And, and, and become a reason for the, for the devil to slander the church. You know, we have a hard time commending to young women who are newly married for the first time the second and third things on the list that Paul commends here. Bear children and keep house. Even in a first marriage, right? Um, So think about what the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy to do. Don't enroll the younger women. Rather, tell them to get married, have children, and keep house. And there's no shame in any of those things. We just have a tendency to think of it as shameful. Think of it as as some sort of, uh, you know, unfulfilling oppressive sort of vocation. The reason you and I feel shame is because we're allowing modern sensibilities and wicked ones at that to distort and corrupt the good things of God. Eve was the mother of all the living, right? And it's woman's call to follow her in her mothering enterprise. This is, this is part of her calling to subdue the earth. This is part of her part of the creation mandate and our culture hates it disparages it and so we train our women to despise men and to hate children and to forsake the home think about it just think for a minute do i have to prove to you that our culture trains women to hate men to despise children and to hate the home i mean it's laughable i don't have to give any proof of that And scripture here is clear. A woman's godliness is intimately tied to her service to others. Her husband, her church, her home, her family. Right? What is wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? No. What is hateful about that? There's nothing, nothing at all hateful about that. And the only reason we think it's hateful is because we've believed the lies of a culture who have taught us that, and we've despised, and we've we've turned our backs on Scripture. So don't listen to the lies of our culture and the accusations of the devil. Would you rather be in league with the devil? Right? Would you rather be in league with those? who are causing the devil to have reason to slander the church. It's absurd. It's absurd. The responsibilities of husband, children, home, and church also keep a woman from the temptation that is common to women. Being idle busybodies. The passage says not only do young widows abandon their faith as they feel sensual desires, but besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
So they will work, but instead they will not work. Idleness is laziness. These women will not work and um, instead give themselves to sticking their noses in other people's business and gossiping with anyone who would care to listen to them. Uh, Notice that last phrase in this section, saying what they should not. Saying what they should not. That's a good definition of gossip, isn't it? Just saying what you should not. Um, but there is that temptation for all of us when we get a juicy piece of information to say, say it when we should not, to say things that we shouldn't spread. Someone um, says someone got a new car, and, and that's a fact. You know, you can say that. Someone got a new car. Um, you then feel the urge to say, well, you know what I heard? I hear he's in debt out the wazoo. That's gossip, right? That's gossip. Um, That is saying what should not be said, and perhaps the temptation for a young widow to engage in this behavior is stronger. A young widow to engage in this behavior is stronger. She has experience. She has been through a trial, and women may be more inclined to listen to her So she's more in a position of authority, and so her words come with weight, and so there's more of a temptation to use those words. So she she must be especially careful. Notice finally that we have a confirmation that not only can this lead to a breaking of a vow of service to the church, but it can lead to a wholesale forsaking of the faith. Paul writes, verse 15, For some have already strayed after Satan. Is it not true that if we do not follow God's word, we are doing as Satan would have us do? We're not following the commands of God's word. We're doing as Satan would have us do. His singular goal through all of history has not changed from his goal on that that day in the Garden of Eden. He still goes about saying, has God really said? Has God really said? Has God really said that young widows should should get married, have children, and keep home. Has God really said? And all the, all the, common, all the modern commentaries come alongside Satan and, and repeat his question. Has God really said this? In regard to this, the feminists have been the mouth of Satan saying, has God really said, get married, have children, order the house? And if we're unwilling to receive and believe and obey God's word in this manner, we are guaranteed to be straying after Satan. So we've covered the first qualification to be enrolled on the widow's list, and it's very important with many possible consequences, right? She must be 60 years old or over. Second, she must have been the wife of only one husband. Now, just as the phrase, a one-woman man, does not exclude men who were biblically divorced from office, if they were remarried, like we went through um, when we were studying the passage on, in First Timothy 3 of elders and deacons. So this phrase, a one-man woman, it's exactly parallel, does not mean that she could only have one husband, particularly when the apostle commends remarriage, not only here in this passage for widows, but elsewhere in general. So as I said a while ago about one woman man essentially meaning he is faithful to his one wife so this means that she was 
always faithful to her one husband. Um, though she could have been widowed more than once, but all through that, uh, she was faithful to her one husband. So she was a godly woman and sexually faithful to her husband. Third, she was to have a reputation for good works. What kind of good works? Well, Paul, the apostle, lists them for us. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the feet of the saints, if she has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. So first, if she has brought up children, there goes the Holy Spirit again. He says that a woman's good works consist in whether she has brought up children. Now, of course, remember that that may mean children other than your own. Are you committed to fulfilling the baptism vows that you've taken when children are baptized here, women? That you would assist the parents in the raising of their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you do that with zeal, you've fulfilled the requirement in a sense. And if you've had children, you not only raised them and kept them alive, right? You've fed them, but you've raised them spiritually. You've pointed them toward the Lord Jesus Christ in faith in him. Second, if she has shown hospitality, has her home been one where people are in and out of it? Or has she been the type of woman who cares more about her white carpet staying white than she does about the needs of the saints being met? Um, If I had white carpet, I'd worry about the white carpet. You know, don't ever get white carpet. Sorry for those of you who have white carpet. Um, Does this woman, does this kind of, this is the kind of woman that that thinks of others when she's hosting. Does she clean her house so that others are comfortable? Does she go overboard in caring for the needs and comforts of others who are over at her house? I know many people who are committed to the concept of hospitality but are terrible at performing it. Um, They think hospitality is simply opening the front door, but it's much more than that. It's making your guests guests feel important. It's making your guests feel important, meeting them at the door when they come over, Um, making sure what they need, though it may be something that you don't particularly like or need, is there. Uh, Some women are committed to the concept of hospitality, but they, they refuse to work at it. Um, Some need to learn to clean. Some need to learn to cook. There, I said it. Some need to learn how to engage in conversation. Some need to learn how to split attention between their children and their guests, which gets very complicated. Um, Some need to learn how to adapt in a thousand different ways, but worse off are simply those who refuse to show hospitality because they're either too proud or too fastidious, too clean. Um... God grow us all in those respects. Um, Third, if she has washed the feet of the saints. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying that she has been committed to the basest needs of God's people. Um, This is humble service and is perhaps the height of hospitality. It is cleaning someone else's bathrooms in their home. And you, of course, remember the example of Jesus in washing the the feet of the apostles. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Washing the feet of the saints. There is nothing... I mean, think of this. There is nothing that a Christian should be unwilling to do for another brother or sister in Christ. It is to be Jesus Christ to others. It is to do the awful things that Jesus did on our behalf. It's to do way less awful things on behalf of the saints. For if she has cared for the afflicted, this is care for those who are in some kind of distress or affliction or Or difficulty, this is care for the diseased, care for the abused, care for the poor, care for the sojourner who has had to leave his home, care for those who are oppressed. Um, I'm currently reading a book on the culture of life that the church has always and everywhere created, and it chronicles many believing women who went out into the corners of the world and began protecting women and children from the ravages of wicked men who would abuse them and kill them. Right? Wherever the church went out, wherever missionaries went out, a culture of life came along with it. And um, time and time again, the care of these women, the, the care of these widows, led to a complete culture shift. From one of bloodshed and death to one of love and life. So how can you women care for the afflicted? Uh, think of that. Sometimes that affliction comes from the sin of the one you are called to minister to. What then? Shall you walk away from the, you know, it'd be, Jesus never would have engaged the woman at the well, right? The affliction that somebody might be under may be because of their terrible sin. Will you judge or will you serve? Will you help? Will you walk away from the woman at the well and not do as Jesus did? Fifth, finally, she has devoted herself to every good work. She's often about the things that are previously listed. She's not a woman who defines herself by her incessant need for me time. She actually enjoys, think of this, she actually enjoys serving her children. She actually enjoys serving others because she knows in doing so she is serving her Savior, Jesus Christ. And she is actually physically, spiritually, wonderfully, storing her treasures in heaven she wakes up in a in the morning joyful she wakes up joyful with the words of this parable on her mind then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was hungry and you gave me food i was thirsty and you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. So we pull back and we think about that for a moment. These are all things she does 
These are all things the godly woman does before she is a widow. You women are doing these things now so that when the time comes, if it should come, the church will have godly widows who continue to serve with single-minded devotion and continue to serve the church. There's no time to retire. There's only time to go from one kind of service to another kind of service. George Knight, in his commentary, summarizes this section this way. The widow to be put on the list is an elderly, faithful, and godly Christian for whom the church should regularly and faithfully care and to whom the church could entrust, if the need arises, tasks she has already performed, tasks that she has performed her whole life, tasks that she is known for already, and so she just continues to do it in the church. This passage is more about women who are not widows than it is about those who are, so to speak. This is the picture of the godly women. So women study it, conform to it, be doers of it. And husbands and fathers teach it and promote it. Um, we're living in an age when women and the elderly feel left out of the church. And the service of the church, here's a way to avoid that, both in preparing for it and in structuring the church to give real experts some hands-on ministry in the church. We should both honor widows and utilize widows. They should pray and they should serve because they've been doing so their entire lives in many cases already. At least the real widow has. The widow indeed has been doing that. Right? And so think... Think about if we had, if this is the description of deaconesses, what it would look like for in our churches. It would be women who are above 60, who have committed to not marrying again, who are serving in the church, who are giving their lives to wash the feet of the saints, who are clothing the naked, who are feeding the needy, who are, who are completely single-mindedly devoted in prayer to the life of the body. That is nothing like what the PCA wants in deaconesses. That is nothing like. They want deaconesses who preach and who rule and who have authority and who are essentially deacons. But if this is the groundwork, as every, every reputable commentary I went to said, if this is the groundwork for some sort of official, official position in the church, well, it's radically different than anything I've ever seen proposed. 